Hello and welcome to Ponto Podcast, the podcast of the Ponto Grassroots Think Tank. My name is Fabian Dufek and I'm your host today. I'm coming to you from sunny Vienna. With me today on this episode is Niklas, Niklas Hintermeyer. Niklas is a policy advisor and works as a research assistant for a US consulting firm. His background is in law and European Union studies with a special interest in the security and defense of the European Union and the rule of law and democracy. Transparency disclaimer, Niklas is working at the Neos Rathaus Club and this podcast has a subsidy running from the city of Vienna. Hello, Niklas. Nice to be here, Fabian. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for joining me. Niklas, we want to talk today about the European Union strategic compass. So uh, as a starter, what's the strategic compass and why should we care about it? Yeah, good question. The strategic compass um, was adapted at the end of March, this March, by the foreign foreign affairs and defense ministers of the European Union. And the strategic compass, to put it simple, is a strategic guidance and vision for a more robust um, security defense policy of the European Union. The European Union should be a more robust and stronger geopolitical actor in the upcoming five to 10 years. And the strategic compass lays out different fields where the European Union has to be more integrated and act more united towards this objective of being a stronger security, geopolitical security actor. So these four fields are act more quickly and decisively when facing crisis. I will come, I will talk about this a little bit later, what this means, but it's primarily in defense matters and security matters. And the second point is the security of the citizens of the European Union. And the third strand, so to say, is investing more in capabilities, in defense and military capabilities. And the fourth strand is strengthening partnerships, for example, with NATO, but also with the African Union to have a more cohesive and united approach when it comes to defense and security matters. So to put it short, there are several threats and challenges um, that the European Union has to face at the, at the current moment when it comes to the Ukraine war, of course, when it comes to cyber threats, when it comes to hybrid threats, but also all kind of disinformation campaigns. And the European Union has decided to confront and adapt to these challenges that come from abroad, but also within the European Union. And the strategic compass is a united vision how to approach these threats and challenges and how to act up in them. When you when you mentioned uh, the first the first pillar of sorts, uh, acting, sounds a lot like uh, operations. Uh, is this purely strategic or is this about operationalizing strategies and tactics as well? That's exactly the topic. It's because it's also like about strengthening the military personnel. For example, there is the possibility of creating a 5,000 strong EU rapid deployment capacity. So like there should be the creation of a 5,000 personnel force when there's a crisis outside of the European Union. So there should be a really like a military force that can be rapidly deployed, that can rapidly react to all kinds of crises of the neighbor of the European Union. This should be operational um, by 2025, like with the first exercises to be conducted in 2023, so in within almost one year. But it's a very big question mark behind it because there, there's been many plans and many, many visions about so-called rapid enforcement troops or rapid enforcement capacities. When we look back, for example, to the battle groups, the European Union battle groups, they should be um, should be formed um, with a personnel of 1,500 personnel, but it's never been used yet. Also, when we look back to the European Council in Helsinki in 1999, 
there was the so-called vision or the, the very big objective of having a force of 60,000 troops that should be operationally deployed within 60 days that has never been established. So there's a very big question mark, also very a lot of analysts are doubting that this EU rapid deployment capacity, whether it should be really operational, whether it can be really used. But it's a it's a big step. It's a big step on paper, but we have to see like in, a, in the upcoming years what it become operational. Like a second, the second point within the first trend is conducting live exercises on land and sea, so that really all the forces within the European Union or specific forces within the European Union conduct exercises on the land and the sea to offer also have like a very full spectrum of exercises, not only on on a territory on land. When it comes to the common security and defense policy missions and operation, also like in civilian nature, but also in military nature, because there's been there have been many operations outside of the European Union, for example, in Africa, they should be also more flexible. It should also be strengthened when it comes to decision making, decision making within these operations and missions should be more united and easily done. This is also one strand. So it's really not only about a vision, a strategic vision or guidance. It's also like really like in operational terms, yeah. What are the obstacles? Um, you mentioned the, the quite long history of the EU battle groups and, and, and all these initiatives and stuff. So what are, what are the, the obstacles that we face uh, in operationalizing that and in implementing that? Is it about political will? Is it about political capital? Is it about the law? Is it about operations? Uh, what's holding us back? Yeah, that's a good question. I think first, of, first and foremost, the threat perception of member states in the European Union um, has been very different. So I think that's, that's one point. When we look, for example, to the Baltics, they... They always kind of fear like the like a Russian aggression or Russian invasion. What we're seeing now, unfortunately, so and they always relied more on NATO trust or like on on a commitment of NATO towards towards the Baltics. So that's that's the that's the case with the Eastern European Union member states. When we look to the south, of course, like the Greece or Spain or also Italy, they always they always kind of reflected up on security in terms of migration and migration flows to, to the Euro European Union, but also when it comes to insecurity from the Northern African member state from Libya, etc. So it was a very different threat perception that was going on in the European Union for a very long time. Also, when we look to Germany with the very enhanced nature of pacifism after the Second World War, of course, where we reluctant to send military troops abroad, But on the other hand, the, the, the second engine of the European Union, for example, France, was always keen to be more capable in military terms to send military forces abroad, also within operations and missions in Africa. And Emmanuel Macron, the French president, always, always had this vision of strategic autonomy that the European Union should care about its own security, not always be reliant on NATO or like a transatlantic relationship with the United States. So that's, I think, the first point. The threat perception was very different among European Union member states. On the second, on the second level, when it, comes to, when it comes to capabilities and military capabilities, the European Defense Union has never been established yet. So it's a very fragmented defense market when it comes to tanks or when it comes to helicopters and all kind of capabilities. And this is also one very strategic approach from the strategic compass that on the first on the first level, member states have to invest more in defense. So like really strengthening 
their military budget, as we've seen, with, for example, with Germany pledging under Chancellor Olaf Scholz that Germany is going to invest more in, in military and defense, which is a good sign. I think after also the Russian aggression was what, what was, of course, the, the incentive, so to say, to do so. And the second point is not only investing more in, in defense and military matters, but also invested jointly. So that's, as I've outlined before, that the capabilities are not so fragmented anymore, that really there's a united approach from the European member states to invest in capabilities, but also when it comes to the technological industrial base, so in research projects and fundings for research projects, this also has to be done on a joint member state level, not every member state, to put it simple, does it on its own. So this is also a very, very important or two very important points within the strategic compass. There have been many projects, for example, PESCO or European Defense Agency, also with the goal of a collaborative approach when it comes to research and funding of um, capabilities and all kinds of defense projects. But I think it's very key to, to have like a link from PESCO, for example, to these new initiatives. It remains to be seen how it develops. And as a last point, was also mentioned in various analysis and various reports. What the European Union is missing um, at the at the moment is the so-called strategic enablers, for for example, for air refueling, helicopters, and intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities, in order to send troops very fast abroad. And also, when it comes to the readiness of troops, military troops, so also investing in these so-called strategic enablers will also be key. In the upcoming years, is the compass intended uh, sort of like um, a uh, sort of a, a bracket to 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 link all these initiatives that you mentioned, like PESCO and uh, and stuff like that, or is this a fundamentally new approach that does away with all the um, standalone initiatives and put it under kind of an umbrella? It's a, as, as I said before, it's a, it's a guidance for securing the defense in the upcoming years, but it it shouldn't be a replacement for PESCO or your European Defense Agency or all the other capacities that have been established in the, in the last couple of years. And also, like in a strategic compass, it's outlined that the European Union, the European Union member states should rely still on PESCO and it's, it's a build-up, so it's no replacement, not, not in all means. And it would, be, it would not make any sense because PESCO, I think, so far there have been about 40 projects in total. So there is there are really things going on, developments when it comes, for example, like to air defense or, or, or also missile defense that will be also key in the upcoming years for the European Union member states. For example, because we've seen with Russia, with the invasion um, of Russia into Ukraine, that Russia has, has used all kinds of hypersonic missiles, but also ballistic missiles. So air and defense, air and missile defense will be also a very important point to consider in the European Union and for its member states in the upcoming years. Yeah. So obviously there has been a lot of talk about NATO and EU defense capabilities. Finland and Sweden seem to move quite quickly into NATO. Uh, we'll see about that. So how does the, the Compass work together with, with NATO? Is it kind of complementary or um, do these uh, things build up on each other? How does, is that going to work? Yeah, good question. So like the, the fourth strength that, I, that I've mentioned before, like partnering, NATO is is first first of all of course mentioned as a as a very strong and reliant partner. So there's no replacement of the NATO partnerships. It's it's different. It's it's the opposite. It's like a deepening 
of the NATO and European Union cooperation. In 2016, the European Union and NATO have agreed on several fields where to cooperate on, for example, when it comes to hybrid threats, but also cybersecurity. I think that's that's a very that's a very strong and important point to mention that it's not intended as a strategic composite. The European Union moves away from NATO and when it comes to the territorial defense of Europe. But of course, on the other hand, since President Emmanuel Macron with his Sorbonne speech in 2017, but also with former Chancellor Angela Merkel in the upcoming years after 2017, it was always mentioned that the European Union has to step up in its territorial defense, but also when it comes to crisis abroad and that it has to have a stronger role in defense and security. So that's what the strategic compass is aiming for. But again, it's, it's no replacement or whatever to NATO. It's more like a, a deepening, integrating, where, where it makes sense to cooperate and have a, a strong partnership. And when we look again to the Ukraine war and to the invasion by Russia, we've seen immediate reaction was Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, um, standing there with Stoltenberg um, from NATO and to give a very united sign to the, to the, to the international order and first and foremost to Russia that NATO and the European Union stand united together and face threats together and there is no either or. Why now and uh, how come? Uh, who, who are the main drivers behind that and how come that we are now or on, only now uh, pushing, pushing for, for things like a strategic uh, compass? Yeah, good question. So I think we have to look a little bit back because in 2016, The, there was the European Global Strategy under Federica Mogherini. She was the former high representative of the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. She was, so to say, the driver of the European Global Strategy. And it also outlined and, and mentioned various threats and challenges that the European Union is faced, faced with when it, came, when it comes to the Crimean annexation um, from Russia, when it comes to term also to say the crisis abroad in the Middle East or in the, in the north of, of Africa. Also, it also mentioned all kinds of cyber threats and disinformation campaigns when it comes to political campaigns and elections. So it was, so to say, like a first step or like a first analysis when it comes to threat perception and challenges towards the European Union. The strategic compass also outlines the threat perception, the challenges in the complex geopolitical environment and moment, but it's, it's a little bit different because the driver again was um, Josef Borrell as the high representative of the European Union for foreign affairs and security policy. He also established like a kind of a partnership and analysis with all the European Union member states and also with the intelligence services of the member states, but also with the European Union institutions. And the first kind of analysis or first step was made in November 2020. And really the release of the state of the adoption was made this March. But I mentioned the European Global Strategy before because it's different this time as it really was adopted by the foreign affairs and defense ministers. It was a more coherent approach by all the member states. And in my, in my opinion, the European Global Strategy in 2016 didn't have this united approach or this kind of impact in the, in the, in the years that followed the adoption of the, or the release of the European Global Strategy. So I think not only European Union member states, but uh, first and foremost, the heads of the European Union institutions, they really yeah, have a big objective with the strategic compass or they, they really have high aims. And I think it's good to do so at the moment. So 
The Russian invasion into Ukraine has obviously led to a big rethinking, probably the biggest rethinking of European security policy since the end of the Cold War. And we didn't really know what to make of that. So maybe because maybe even since the formation of NATO itself, are there new implications for the process regarding the strategic compass that influence this? And what are these implications and where do we go from here knowing what happened? Yeah, the, the creation of the strategic compass had been started before the, the Russian invasion. So this is this work on, or like this analysis on the threats and challenges and, and on these various different strands. This work had been ongoing before the Russian invasion in, in this February. It's mentioned by Josef Borrell that the Russian aggression, of course, is unlawful, is illegal and, and by all means is condemned by the European Union. So it has an implication, the Russian invasion, the Russian war, um, because it's mentioned in strategic compass. It's also mentioned as a threat towards Europe, obviously, not only since the, the Crimea annexation in 2014 by Russia, but um, it has an implication. But I think in the strategic compass, it's only, it's mentioned, of course, like within one chapter, but like when it comes to really like operational terms, what I've mentioned before, we've seen like several member states making pledges when when it comes to more investments into the, their military and defense budget. First and foremost, with, with Germany as one of the main drivers and the political heavyweights in the European Union. But as I said before, also Finland and Sweden. Thinking about NATO membership, of course, that's now like the wider European landscape, not the European Union landscape per se. So we've seen a tectonic shift of European security defense order. But I think a very, very important question is also what to do at the moment, but what also what it means when hopefully the, the war will be soon over. I think what we've seen um, that the European Union is first and foremost sending weapons to sending weapons to Ukraine from the European peace facility with over 100 billion euros. So that's a very, very strong sign. Also, of course, NATO sending weapons, but... European Union is doing it. Germany is doing it for the first time. So breaking kind of with this pacifism, um, strategic culture, national strategic culture, because they they weren't sending weapons to Ukraine after the annexation of the Crimea or like the, the Donbass um, crisis and the Donbass fighting. So Germany is also heading towards a new strategic culture, a new approach to its own security defense. I think we, when we look at all these bits and bytes, so to say, that are going that, that are going on in the European Union, I think it will lead to a further, to a further strengthening and a more united approach to the security defense of the European Union. But on the other hand, when we look to Russia, they they completely destroy more and more the, the conventional forces, the conventional troops. They they've been spending a lot of money since years to building up these conventional troops, but they're getting more and more destroyed. And many analysts also say that when the war is hopefully soon over, then then it, there will be also like um, a lack when it comes to the, 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 the arms forces of Russia, but maybe a more coherent and integrated approach of the European Union on the other hand. So that's per, perhaps, so, so to say, a good sign that the European Union is stepping up its efforts. But of course, the background is a very dark one and it's a very sad one. You mentioned the powerhouses and uh, one tends to think of, of course, France as probably the most uh, capable military force in the European Union, but also Germany. Is. But it comes to mind, uh, 
Poland plays a critical role in uh, kind of facilitating the support for Ukraine. Of course, the Baltic states are pushing hard uh, to to step up the European game when facing Russia. Do we see the emergence of new powerhouses in the Baltic states, Eastern European states, and uh, less influence of the classic uh, powerhouses like France, uh, the UK, of course, have <laughs> left the European Union? It's a good question. I think I think we have to differentiate between like political powerhouse, economic powerhouse, right, and military powerhouse. When it comes to political heavyweight, of course, first of all, there is Germany and France still, and, and for good reasons. Also, when it comes to economic terms, Germany and France are really, really still on top. But you're right. I mean, Poland is, is doing a lot when it comes to the migration crisis and, and letting migrants in from from Ukraine, which is which is a very good sign. Also, against the background that there have been, have been many um, discussions and controversies um, between Poland and the European Union when it comes to the rule of law issues, but also like the independence of judges in, in the courts or in the institutional courts. What I'm trying to say, I think we have to differentiate um, when it comes now to the strategic compass and, and drivers of security and defense. I think it's it's still it has to be still um, Germany, Germany and France, and I think Germany is more and more also willing to step into these shoes. But I think also a very important point to mention here is, for example, when we look to the Baltic states, they they always relied more on NATO trust and NATO commitment. But one goal or one objective would be for the European Union to to also get them to trust into the European Union security and defense matters, not only always rely or look towards NATO, but also look towards the defense affairs and defense issues of the European Union, that European Union can be in this matter very reliant partner and is a reliant partner. I think this is, that that's a challenge, to be honest, like when it comes to the internal cohesion, so to say, of the European Union, it's not undoable. But we're seeing more of a cohesion, like in general terms, of course, with the with the Russian war going on, that member states are stepping up together, having a commitment towards more pledges for um, military spending, letting in migrants, helping with humanitarian aid. So that's a very good sign. Um, we've seen that immediately after the Russian invasion. But of course... Like a second second thinking, but it goes a little bit away of securing the defense matters. It remains to be seen how these ongoing disputes and controversies um, in regards to rule of law and democracy in Poland, Hungary, how these kind of things evolve. And we've seen like the the, the commission is triggering the Article Seven procedure against uh, Hungary, or is willing to do so. It, it remains to be seen how how the cohesion of the European Union can be maintained or these kind of disputes come to the surface again. But like at the moment we've see we see in several terms a very a very united European Union also when it comes to energy. But uh, here of course there are different opinions how to you know, not not replace but how to find a way not to be so re- dependent on Russian gas and oil and coal of course with coal having a different way for the European Union is easier of course when it comes to comparison to gas. And oil, but I think it's a different matter. But what I'm trying to say here, maybe here member states are not united on this front, but they're willing at least to find a common way, a best common solution. A lot of Eastern European states are 
kind of using the um, uh, the situation to get rid of um, of old uh, Soviet time uh, military equipment and kind of restocking, um, um, f- going to the future using more modern equipment. Do we uh, want to use uh, that to to build up uh, European uh, corporations and and players, or do we uh, will, will we continue to to buy from the Americans? A lot of talking about F thirty five and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we looking to to build up our own capacities and capabilities? I think I think so. I think so, and that's also as I've outlined before, one of the objectives or goals um, of the strategic compass to not only invest jointly in capabilities capabilities that are much needed, but also to have appropriate research projects. So, so like the technological industrial base is very much strengthened, so to say, to have capabilities made in Europe, made in European Union. And not that we are buying military equipment from from the United States or within the framework of NATO. I think that's that's a good sign. A lot of money is needed, and and a lot of different analysis is needed. Also, what kind of capabilities do different member states need? Then, where is the money coming from? And then, how can the member states jointly invest in them? But I think the Commission. And also European Defense Agency, I think they're commissioned to do an analysis by mid of May, what what kind of capability gaps are still existing in the European Union, how can they be filled and where should the money come from. So I think these are really good signs that the European Union is aware that there's a capability gap and also like a fragmented defense market and security defense market in the European Union. But still, it's it's on paper. It exists on paper. There, there, there are a lot of commitments, but it remains to be seen how how it's going on in the next couple of years. So, what's to come in the coming months and years? What do you think? I think I think as I said before, I think it really depends on whether all these objectives and goals within the strategic compass. I've net I, I, I haven't mentioned, for example, like strengthening of the cybersecurity. Um, defense policy or like the hybrid toolbox that is to be established within the framework of the strategic compass or also like when it comes to tools to prevent and respond to all kind of disinformation campaigns so it remains to be seen whether the european union live really up to these standards and to these pledges that exist on paper and within the strategic guidance and vision within the strategic compass Again, with the EU rapid deployment capacity, that's one thing for me where the European Union has to really just step up to its commitment and then really, yeah, really make it make it reality because it should it should consist also like of an not alternative, but adjusted battle groups. How this works or how this is going to work is also like a big question mark, but the European Union should really should really make it happen. Otherwise, it loses a little bit of credibility, of course, mm-hmm. within the European Union, also outside, and a lot of a lot of um, um, time to get the boots on the ground. Exactly. Uh, Niklas, finally, do you have tips on who to follow, uh, what to read, if our listeners want to dive deeper into the topic? Where can we follow your work, maybe? Yeah, sure. Like um, a lot of think tanks, I've been following a lot of think tanks, reports and publications when it comes to the strategic compass, for example, European Council on Foreign Relations or the German Council on Foreign Relations has has published quite extensively on security and defense order of the European Union. 
when it comes to double I, double S in London and also the branch in, in Germany, it's also writing a lot about the shift, the tectonic shift of security landscape in, in the European Union or in wider Europe. I think that's very good to read and very, very approachable and, and very good to think about it and reflect up on it. So I think these three think tanks, but also when it comes to European Policy Center in Brussels, it's also a good source to dig deeper into the topic. Niklas, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of the Ponto podcast. We are looking forward to your feedback at ponto at pontothinktank.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, if you can drop us some five-star reviews, that really helps Ponto and the podcast quite a bit. Join our amazing group and think tank and support us on pontothinktank.org slash mitmachen. Thank you for joining us and until next time. Bye bye.